You're listening to a UCT Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to uct.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the Humanities Institute Annual Distinguished Guest Lecture. The 2022 lecture was given by Dr. Catherine Flynn from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Flynn's lecture was entitled Circe and the Phantasmagoria of Capitalism. I'm delighted to be here today. It's such an honor and thank you for this invitation. Thanks for the introduction. Thank you to everyone for showing up to listen. Um, it's really nice to see people in the same space. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk about Circe today, and this is um, an episode I've published on before. Um, and okay, so let me just back up a little bit. Circe, as you probably, most of you know, is one of the most outrageous episodes in Ulysses. Um, I feel like asking for a show of hands, who's read Circe before? Okay, so, okay, so some people haven't, all right. Set, it's set in Dublin's red light district, known to us as Monto, but in Ulysses as Nighttown, where Bloom follows Stephen, the younger Stephen, to protect him from his irresponsible friends, from unscrupulous brothel keepers, and maybe from himself, Stephen himself. In this episode, both Stephen and Bloom experience a series of waking dreams, or what Joyce calls exploding visions. The episode is even stranger in being written in the form of a play script. It's the longest episode in Ulysses, counting for a seventh of the whole novel in terms of words. It's also very strange in that all of the preceding figures of the novel reappear in this episode in new hallucinatory forms. So in talking about this episode today, I want to take up a term that was important to the Frankfurt School theorist Walter Benjamin. This is in the title of my talk, Phantasmagoria. I'd like to read Circe with you in order to suggest a revision of this term and one that suits our contemporary critical moment. Walter ben okay, so Walter Benjamin was a key figure in my book, James Joyce and the Matter of Paris. And however, in that book, rather than applying Benjamin's theor um, theories to Joyce, to explain Joyce, I argued instead that Joyce influenced Benjamin, that the exploding visions of the Circe episode influenced the wave-like structure of the first surrealist novel written by Louis Aragon, who was an intimate of Shakespeare and company. Benjamin himself wrote that this novel, Le Paysan de Paris, or Paris Peasant, prompted him to write the Arcades Project. Um, reading, reading pa Paris Peasant alongside Circe we can see its influence on Benjamin's understanding of the Surrealists and their wavering on the threshold between sleep and dreams. So here I want to examine Circe's representation of minor characters, especially people of colour. And I want to do this in order to extend this concept of phantasmagoria to address the distortions of the imagination under capitalism. I want to think about Circe as a technology of representation that's concerned with the collective experience of capitalism. To do this, I will consider again the form of the episode, 
something which has long puzzled readers. We ask, why does it take the form of a stage play? Literally, um, there is a, a literality, sorry, a literality to the events in this closet drama. They unfold without narrative guidance, described only in the stage directions. The crucial effect of this form that I will focus on is its implied audience, a shared readerly experience, a conceptual, notional, virtual one, that is very different to the experience implied by the other narrative structures of the novel. So let's look for a minute at um, Phantasmagoria. So here's an image of the play script form of Circe. This is the very beginning of the episode in the 1922 edition. Here's a picture of um, Walter Benjamin uh, studying in the library, <laughs> in a library. Okay, so here is Howard Island and Michael Jennings' very useful summary of the concept of phantasmagoria. For Benjamin in the 30s, the world in which we live has the character of an optical device, a phantasmagoria. Originally an 18th century illusionistic device with which shadows of moving figures were projected onto a wall or screen, Phantasmagoria in Benjamin is redefined to fit the world of urban commodity capitalism, an environment so pressingly real that we take it to be given and natural, when in fact it's a socioeconomic construct, and in the Brechtian language of the artwork essay, an apparatus. The term phantasmagoria thus brings out the power of illusion at work in this environment, a power that imperils not only the general intelligibility of things, but also the readiness of humans to form habits and make decisions. So this phantasmagoria then starts as a magic lantern, casting images into space in a, an exciting and disorientating manner. It's used by this Marxist theorist to describe the nature of experience in urban commodity capitalism, an environment that <coughs> seems real, but is actually a realm in which images of commodities cover over social and economic relations. Benjamin's sense of a phantasmagoric world in which things are generally unintelligible, in which individuals have profound difficulty forming habits and making decisions, describes very well the helter-skelter world of Circe with its rapid changes of scene and mood and blooms, whims and deviant actions. Digressive actions, you could also say. Benjamin, however, used this term almost 100 years ago. Since then, issues of race have become newly salient for us, for us, issues that do not register in Benjamin's account of the phantasmagoria. In the enormous virtual stage play of Circe, however, they do. This space of Nighttown is a hyperbolic site of capitalism, a locus of commerce at its most personal and invasive. Circe offers us an exaggerated caricature of capitalism. It allows, it, it allows us to examine its workings at a magnified scale. By looking, I propose, at minor characters, especially characters of color in Circe, I want to examine not so much the specifics of brothels or the ethics of sex work, but the workings of desire under capitalism. I want to explore how the dream world of Circe shows us the distortion of desire, how in an environment of total capitalization, total um, finance, total exchange, we can want the enslavement of others. So my focus here is not on the prostitute, 
But on the client, or in slang terms, the John, it's always a weird, I feel bad for Johns, the, the client, and how the customer, and how Circe shows us how desire is put to work under capitalism, channeled, instrumentalized. To do this, I'm going to look at a moment in which Molly's desires are described in Circe. Molly appears only fleetingly in the episode um, as a commanding figure dressed as a slave girl. So um, a voice, Poldy, uh, sharply, Bloom, who? He ducks and wards off a blow clumsily at your service. He looks up. Beside her mirage of date palms, a handsome woman in Turkish costume stands before him. Opulent curves fill out her scarlet trousers and jacket slashed with gold. A wide yellow cummerbund girdles her. A white yashmak, violet in the night, covers her face, leaving free only her large dark eyes and raven hair. Bloom, Molly, Marion, Welly, Mrs. Marion from this up, my dear man, when you speak to me. So a more telling moment occurs, when, not when Molly is present, but when she's described by Bloom. And this moment allows us to think beyond the binaries of male and female that the episode encourages to us to think in um, and that it engages in more directly. So we might think a bit about those binaries before we get into looking at Molly. So in um, James Joyce and the Matter of Paris, I argue that Bloom's unusual sexual interests resist the norms of Nighttown. His desires are the desires of a man for a woman, yet they're directed away from heterogenital sex. <laughs> There's never a less erotic phrase, heterogenital sex. <laughs> Towards voyeurism, masturbation, masochism, coprophilia, and maybe most unusually, the indirect enjoyment of body heat. The larger context of Ulysses offers an explanation for his redirection of desire away from penetrative heterosexual sex. Could never like it again after Rudy, he muses, in Lestragonians, thinking of the death of his baby son and the subsequent hiatus in sexual intercourse between him and Molly. Yet this avoidance is recast in Circe as a refusal of the dominant positions of client, husband, and father. Instead of instrumentalizing women, Bloom lets himself be turned into an object. In contrast, Blazes Boylan enacts a policy of possession and use through heterogenital penetration of Molly. And we'll see this exemplified in two little quotations. I have a little private business with your wife, you understand. And as Bella Cohen puts it, there's a man of brawn in possession there. Wait for nine months, my lad. In Circe, childmaking is central to the operation of capital. Bloom's response to their copulation is to take pleasure in watching. Show, hide, show, plow her, more, shoot. Meanwhile, his desires deviate from the production and reproduction of wealth. So if he dodges the mold in which men are encouraged to, or, or men are put in by a night town, Bloom's creative energies are nonetheless hampered by it. Um, creativity in general is blocked by the profit principle that rules Nighttown, a place where everything is turned to financial profit, economic profit. The result is a misdirected creativity that we see in the episode's riotous series of fleeting visions. Its constant and uncontrolled motion presents the ensnaring of human productive powers as well as human reproductive powers in structures of profit and possession. The appropriation of productivity by profit leads to a creativity that's both hyper-developed hyper and futile. 
a heightened and aberrant generativity. So we see this most clearly in Bloom's vision of the new Blue Muslim. Um, in a parody of world exhibitions and cities of the future, Bloom announces a personally branded promised land. Bloom, my beloved subjects, a new era is about to dawn. I, Bloom, tell you verily, it is even now at hand. Yea, on the word of a bloom, ye shall ere long enter into the golden city, which is to be the new Blue Muslim and the Nova Hibernia of the future. 32 workmen wearing rosettes from all the counties of Ireland, under the guidance of Derwin the Builder, construct the new Blue Muslim. It is a colossal edifice with crystal roof, built in the shape of a huge pork kidney, containing 40,000 rooms. In the course of its extension, several buildings and monuments are demolished. Government offices are temporarily transferred to railway sheds. Numerous houses are raised to the ground. The inhabitants are lodged in barrels and boxes, all marked in red with the letters LB. Several paupers fall from a ladder. A part of the walls of Dublin, crowded with royal sightseers, collapses. The sightseers dying, morituri te salutant, they die. Situated on Irish land and built by Irish workers, the new Blue Muslim evokes the Crystal Palace of London. Um, picture here. The building even more closely evokes the 1867 World Exposition Building in Paris, a 1,600-foot-long ovoid building with a glass and steel roof built on the Champ de Mars in the middle of Paris. The massive displacement of Parisian city dwellers by Haussmann's urban developments is parodied here in the boxing up of Dubliners. In the Arcades project, so this strange book that Benjamin put together of quotations and fragmentary commentary, he writes of the shift in these world expositions from a focus on an internationalist display of transformative ideals made possible by new industrial technologies to a new culture of commodity display. In the conversion of transformative potential into commodities, the moment of possible transition into socialism is foregone. So here is one comment that he records in the Arcades project. Europe is off to view the merchandise, said Renan contemptuously, of the 1855 exhibition. Here's another one. Uh, you, um, this year has been lost for propaganda, says a socialist orator at the Congress of 1900. And more grimly, Julius Lessing. The world expositions have lost much of their original character. The enthusiasm that in 1851 was felt in the most disparate circles has subsided, and in its place has come a kind of cool calculation. In 1851, we were living in the era of free trade. For some decades now, we've witnessed the spread of protectionism. Participation in the exhibition becomes a sort of representation. And whereas, whereas in 1850, the ruling tenet was that the government need not concern itself in this affair, the situation today is so far advanced that the government of each country can be considered a veritable entrepreneur. With these quotations, Benjamin documents a shift away from pacifist internationalism and cooperation, whatever there once was there in the 19th century. Jules Lessing, writing about the 1900 Paris, Paris Expo, describes governments focused on profit and engaged in self-advertisement. Countries are not potential participants in the international lines of socialism, but rather competitors in the generation of what we would now call gross domestic product. 
Lessing describes participation in these expositions as a sort of representation. And I would argue that Circe grapples with that condition, presenting a spectacular kind of representation that we are forced to grapple with. What I'm interested in is not imaginative participation in, say, imperial rule through commodities. This has been just discussed very well by, various, by Joyce scholars like you know, Gary Leonard and Andrew Duffy and many others, but rather the social world of capitalism, one in which we dominate others explicitly or implicitly. This is less about consumer habits, the increased consumption after the 1851 exhibition, and more about the psychological effects of capitalism on sociality. So I want to turn now to the minor characters, or a couple of them, in Circe. While Bloom's fantasy provokes sympathy for the seemingly inconsequential urban dwellers displaced by the construction of the new Blue Muslim, inhabitants, paupers, loyal sightseers are named and passed on from very, very rapidly. What is even more, and I think that hits us in a way, it kind of engenders sympathy in us, um, even as we laugh um, at the ridiculousness of such carnage. Um, I want to focus on the black and black-faced minstrels who enter and exit rapidly, prompted by Bloom's disclosure of Molly's desires. These arise in response to um, Bloom's, to Josie Breen's announcement to Bloom that being in Nighttown calls for some accounting. Mrs. Breen, Mr. Bloom, you down here in the haunts of sin. I caught you nicely, scamp. Bloom, hurriedly, not so loud my name. Whatever do you think me? Don't give me away, walls of ears. How do you do? It's ages since. You're looking splendid, absolutely. It's seasonal weather we're having this time of the year. Black reflects heat, shortcut home here. Interesting quarter, rescue of the fallen Magdalene women. Or sorry, fallen women, Magdalene asylum. I am the secretary, Mrs. Breen holds up a finger. Now don't tell the big fib. I know somebody won't like that. Oh, just wait till I see Molly, slyly. Account for yourself this very minute, or woe betide you. Um, we could say that, uh, okay, and so what Bloom goes on to say is, looks behind. She's often said she'd like to visit, slumming. The exotic, you see, Negro servants too in livery, if she had money. Othello, Black Brute, Eugene Stratton, even the Bones and Corner Man at the Livermore Christie's. Bohe Brothers, Sweep for that matter. And then Tom and Sam Bowie appear. I'll get into that a little later. We could say that Bloom's account of Molly's desires is a dodge, a distraction from his own sense of guilt, um, from his own sense of guilt of being at nighttime. Um, Molly's desires for a black servant are not articulated outside of Circe, although she does think of black male bodies in Penelope. So around the middle of this quotation, uh, or no, about three, four lines down, she's thinking about Mrs. Langdry, the Jersey Lily, the Prince of Wales was in love with. I suppose he's like the first man going down the roads, only for the name of a king. They're all made the one way, only a black man's I'd like to try. A beauty up to, what was it? 40, what was she? 45. So um, <laughs> in this moment of her interior monologue, Molly equalizes king and commoner. She shows curiosity about black men in a way that's exoticizing and objectifying, but it's not enslaving. There are no fantasies of dominance here. We might, um, reading Circe, we make, make the fallacy of assuming a real continuous world behind the text, um, beyond its words. The fallacy of how many children had Lady Macbeth. But 
whether it occurs elsewhere in the novel, I think, doesn't matter so much. Or it, what it does is throws into relief the workings of Circe. Um, it's important to note that the reports of her fantasies of erotic domination are in Circe, an instance of the episode's logic of exploitation. Circe frames them as an idea in the red light district, a space in which everything's turned to profit. Here we might think of um, Theodore Donor's idea that there is no right life in the wrong one. Um, we perhaps can take a less bad approach to living in a world structured by capitalism, but we cannot find a perfect one. This still does not in any way um, excuse the thoughts, that, um, the thoughts of exploitation. The dream world of Circe shows us the distortion of desire's fantasies, how capitalism entices us to desire the subjugation of others. In a society where we're all encouraged to consume, we're all encouraged to be Johns or to feel at least like we are the John. Um, thus, uh, the role play of Circe becomes important. Fantasy becomes work. Our fantasies are a kind of work when they enlist others in subjugated positions. So um, Molly is thinking in terms of popular culture of the time. Um, Eugene Stratton performed in Dublin in, on June 16, 1904 at the Royal Theatre on Hawkins Street. Judith Harrington writes about his German-American origins and his enormous success as a performer. Eugene Stratton was born in Buffalo, New York. So this is the Eugene Stratton who appears here, um, who's uh, mentioned by uh, Loon there, named by him. Um, and uh, two first-generation Alsatian parents who named their son Eugene Augustus Ruhlmann. At his peak, Judith, um, Judith reports, he was earning 300 pounds a week, often appearing at seven different London music halls on a single evening. He toured the provinces, soon becoming a Dublin favorite. Joyce's representation of Eugene Stratton is complex. We can turn to a moment of textual variation um, in, uh, to see that. So in Wandering Rocks, Father Conmey is riding on the tram, and it pauses on um, Ainsley Bridge. He looks out and sees this poster, from the a theatrical poster, from the hoardings, Mr. Eugene Stratton grinned with thick inward lips at Father Conley. So this is the first edition where he grins. In the Gabler edition, Eugene Stratton grimaces. I think this is very interesting, this wavering between the two. Um, one is the sort of uh, seamless performance of a role, Another is the expression of pain in the performance of that role. And we can think of the kind of resonance between the two as um, very telling of the condition of the minstrel performer, even the white blackface minstrel performer. So, um, yeah, there's a, Zach Bo in Zach Bowen's essay, Joyce, Minstrels and Mimes, he tells the history of um, blackface performance. And uh, let me just read, there's an, one, uh, blah, blah, blah. I just want to read this first one leading into that. Um, oh yeah. So he writes about it as a particularly American um, form of entertainment and a particularly American form of humor. Their popularity, he writes in the 19th century, or their popularity in the 19th century, he writes, 
still unprecedented on the American stage, began long before the Civil War, back in the 1820s, in an equally unprecedented forum, with a cast of white people imitating black plantation slaves, which drew big audiences in both cities and through touring companies, the rural South and Midwest until the late 19th century. So this is a little more recent account then of it, its evolution. After the Civil War, free blacks, obviously more authentically black than their white imitators, were anxious to participate in the rewards accruing to the perverted appropriations of their own talent. But because of pervasive white influence, black performers had to imitate the whites imitating black. Yeah. So hence the grinned grimaced, um, uh, well, yeah, variation. So in Circe thus, thus we see not just performances for profit, but performances desired through the eyes of the Molly of Circe. This illustrates the restructuring of imagination. I think the concept of racial capitalism can help us think through this disconnection between performance and self and between the various characters of Circe. Cedric J. Robinson defines racial capitalism as extracting social and economic value from a person of a different racial identity. But he also insists that all capitalism is inherently racial capitalism. Capitalism works through inequality. It can only accumulate by producing and moving through relations of severe inequality among human groups. It exploits and preys upon the unequal differentiation of human value. Circe gives us an unequal differentiation of human value in its allocation of space to the various characters. Um, Bloom is able to change form, to project fantasies, to um, go through an evolution in his relations to the other characters, even if we don't have access to his interiority to see in the way that we do in the earlier episodes. But figures like Eugene Stratton pass extremely briefly through the text and are, they're cordoned off, they're denied, they're disconnected from its social world, even if they play important roles in the psychic life and the erotic life of its inhabitants in Circe. So this erotic um, use of race is analogous, I would say, to the workings of heron folk democracy, where marginalized groups of a dominant race gain a sense of status from the further subjugation of a minority. Um, so uh, Molly in Circe fantasizing about possessing a black servant or ruling over a black servant, Negro servants in livery, is another version of or creates a hierarchy in which she as a woman is, um, is able to subjugate another figure. Uh, so if theories of racial capitalism refer to economic relations, in Circe, disconnection and inequality play imaginative, an imaginative erotic role. Um, all right, so the question is then, when Circe shows us role, role play, fantasies at work, does it buttress the status quo? Um, unsurprisingly, I'm going to say that it doesn't. <laughs> um, but it's complex, I think. It's, uh, it takes some arguing to say why. So racial capitalism's concept of disconnected social consciousness, the discontinuity of interhuman relations in the 20th century, 
is in some ways a racialized version of the Marxist problem of the bourgeois society of individuals whose desires are trained by capitalism and thus operate as a block to socialist aims. In Benjamin's essay on surrealism, his answer is radical. Obliterate individual subjectivity in favor of a collective formed through the vibrational effects of a space of representation, the very strange and um, mysterious image body space. Um, uh, this notion, uh, people have argued, is easily hijacked by total works of art, like the works of art, like Nuremberg rallies. But so I would argue that even as it displays the social disconnectedness, Circe stages a restorative reconnection of the whole through its phantasmagoria. It does so through the recapitulation of all of Ulysses to this point. We can see this in the appearance of the minstrels, Tom and Sam Bohe. So these are Canadian-born African-Americans who are highly skilled banjo players and uh, so prominent and prestigious that they had given King Edward banjo lessons. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think of the king taking banjo lessons. Um, but I mean, is it now? No, it's not. Um, so, okay, let me read it. Tom and Sam Bohe, colored coons in white duck suits, scarlet socks, upstarched Sambo chokers, so this is full of terms that we find problematic now, and large scarlet asters in their buttonholes leap out. Each has his banjo slung. Their paler, smaller, negroid hands jingle the twing-twang wires. Flashing white kaffir eyes and tusks, they rattle through a breakdown in clumsy clogs, twinging, singing, back to back, toll, heel, heel, toe, with smat, fat, clacking, inward lips. Tom and Sam. There's someone in the house with dino, there's someone in the house I know, there's someone in the house with dino, playing on the old banjo. They whisk black masks from raw babby faces, then chuckling, chortling, trumming, twanging, they diddle, diddle, cape walk dance away. So this, appear, this uh, manifestation of Tom and Sam Bohe raises the question of the reality of Circe. Um, who gets to act and who gets to think? Um, who gets to verbalize their interiority, because there's no stream of consciousness really in this episode, and who is merely a figure on its stage? We know that it's object speak, the famous button in the um, trousers uh, pops off and says, bip, at a really pivotal moment. Do the Bohe brothers um, get to take action? In asking that, in asking that question, we think about the gap between the characters, and in doing so, we strive to bridge it conceptually. Um, so that's something I'm going to come back to. Do the Bohe brothers break character in their laughter as they exit the stage? So as they, um, they exit, chuckling, chortling, trumming, twanging, they diddle, diddle, cakewalk, dance away. So cakewalk, the cakewalk, as you might know, was a dance that African-Americans developed in mockery of their masters, overly stiff um, ways of moving around. Um, this then had an afterlife in minstrel shows where white people mimicked black people mimicking white people. Um, this is potentially in the dance danced by these African-American Canadians, um, potentially an authentic expression of mockery of their audience. However, is anything real at this moment? In this, at the, in this moment where they whisk black masks away, raw babby faces underneath, 
What color are they really? We might ask. The episode doesn't tell us. There's no color, they're raw. It's as if they have no skin underneath. They're babies, they're babies, <laughs> they're babies. Uh, in this sense, they are um, beginning to be human um, without race, expressing perhaps a kind of creative um, protein energy. Um, this could be an idealization of this moment. However, I think that it invites such readings. So the Bohe brothers flash white Kaffir eyes in a reference to the um, white blackface performer, G.H. Chingwen, who was the English son of a clowning family, known for his distinctive blackface makeup in which he deliberately added a white diamond lozenge, lozenge shape, like a diamond, uh, over one eye. Bloom is linked to this character in the Cyclops episode, where the citizen barks, is it that white-eyed Kaffir, referring to Bloom. Bloom is also referred to a babby in the Cyclops episode. Um, Zoe calls him babby, exclamation mark. Bello sneers, cry babby. Molly in Penelope refers to that big babby face that he has. So this moment of seeming isolation is in fact one that has connections throughout the text and to its main character. Not to reduce this, as many people have done, to um, just a kind of a projection of Bloom's unconscious. I think that what is going on in Circe is far bigger than an individual's mind, even though it is about the workings of consciousness under an imagination under capitalism. So, um, Zach Bowen argues that the minstrels sang and danced the juba, their physical pelvic contortions and bodily abandonment to the music opened white eyes to their own inhibitions, the inhibitions of white people. And that is what Circe is all about. So for Zach Bowen, Circe is about smashing conventions around um, sexual appropriateness, um, sexual freedom. But I would argue here that the episode is about opening our eyes to social divisions, about undoing um, individuality as the major interpretive trope for the world. A second, okay, so a second powerful way, um, in addition to the recursivity of Circe, um, its connectedness with the whole of the episode, its recreation of the novel as world within its pages, on its stage, a second powerful way that it responds to a disconnected society is in its play script form. Joyce creates a, a technology of representation in which we watch as an implied community. This technology works through us as we read, in the sense that we feel we are part of an addressed audience. As we read, we create a whole out of the text, um, out of our um, community of readers. Um, we feel like members of a community. And uh, this is something very different from reading a novel, which is, um, you could say, a much more individualizing experience, even though we're always thinking about other readers too when we read novels. But this, this play script of Circe is constantly appealing to a gathered audience. Um, so from that perspective, we might think again about desire, and uh, this is my conclusion. And we might think about it as something creative and interpersonal, something that we approach the text with um, or rather something that the text asks us to approach it with.
rather than something that we merely study within, on the stage of Circe. This desire isn't um, a lack, as defined by Lacan, or as understood in, say, the Judeo-Christian um, context, as something avaricious or excessive, the opposite of rationality, to be controlled and suppressed. But instead, and this desire might be thought of as active and positive, an affirmative vital force, um, as leading into and being seen in a kind of creative labor in response to the shifting phantasmagoria of Circe. Okay, thank you for listening. <laughs>